This Week in HPC by Intersect 360 Research. Intel readies Nirvana AI chip. And updates from HPC China. It's This Week in HPC. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening into another episode of This Week in HPC with Intersect 360 Research, distributed in partnership with Top500.org. I'm Addison Snell, and that's Michael Feldman. Michael, This Week in HPC. Biggest news story coming out is that Intel is getting ready to ship its Nirvana AI chips, its first neural network chips, saying it's going to have first shipments by the end of the year. Right, and the end of the year is coming fast, so we're going to see that in the next uh two months or so um and i'm guessing it'll probably be announced somewhere around sc in the middle of november towards the end of november so we'll, we'll see how that turns out but yeah this is basically their lake crest chip they codenamed this lake crest their first nirvana infused uh, machine learning chip that they've been talking about for a while but they hadn't talked about it recently and so they set this marker down um to say that they would be shipping it before the end of the year. Originally, it was supposed to be shipped in the first half of the year, so things got slowed down for various reasons, but they are going to be releasing this chip for commercial use uh, within the next two months. And this is, again, this is the chip that's going to infuse the Nirvana technology. Nirvana is the company, the AI startup that Intel acquired uh, last year for about $350 million, and this is dedicated... Some of the IP there was for a dedicated piece of hardware, a dedicated processor that only did AI. It's not like a GPU or an FPGA or even a CPU. It It's custom built to only do uh, deep learning, machine learning type of workloads. And it's, it does this with various types of technologies that they've talked about, including flex, a flex point uh, format, uh, numerical format, but it's got some other goodies in there as well. And they've productized this. And... They've probably got some uh, initial versions out there, but they aren't talking too much about how it's performing. They're just saying it's it's almost ready to go. Yeah, this is interesting. I mean, we knew they had to come to market with this chip. This was the Nirvana processor, which is codenamed Lakecrest, but is now officially going to be still called the Nirvana Neural Network Processor, or the NNP, because Intel has to have a three-letter abbreviation for everything, whether it's three letters or not. So this is the NNP coming from Intel. And you compared this in your article, Michael, to the Google Tensor Processing Unit, or TPU, which is also three letters, even though it doesn't come from Intel, uh, is a very similar kind of product. Now, what gets tough in this space is AI is now getting really broad. There's both training and inference. There's everything from data center uses of AI out to edge and fog kind of use cases and embedded uh, AI processing. Where does this fit into the overall spectrum? Well, this is going to be a high-end uh the deep learning chip uh, like the TPU became in its second generation. So the first generation of the TPU from Google, you remember, only did inferencing. It was a, a fairly simple uh, chip and it, it uh, was able to do the lower computationally intensive inferencing part of of the deep learning. But the second generation did both. And that's what NNP is going to do as well. It's It's going to be able to do both, but it's specifically going to be able to to do the computationally intensive part of training um, and thus compete with things like the TPU and, of course, uh, GPUs as well from NVIDIA. Uh, so it's definitely going to be a high-end chip. Uh, they haven't talked about the number of teraflops or teraops it's going to be able to deliver, but 
as I pointed out in the article I wrote this week, it, it basically better be on par with with the TPU or with the and with the um, the latest NVIDIA V100 GPU as far as performance goes. Um, and, and those chips are well above 100 teraflops when you start measuring the the deep learning matrix math type of performance. So I'm guessing it will be. They, they're well aware of their competition and they, they know where they have to be. Um, they just haven't released the information yet, but we're gonna, again, we're gonna see that in a couple months. The thing that intrigues me about the strategy here is how increasingly Intel is set up to be at some level a competitor in some technology with companies that, that are their biggest customers. And whether that's true, whether you're talking about server vendors or hyperscale companies like Google, Intel certainly wants to sell technologies to Google, but they're going to have a competing product with this uh, with this Nirvana. Now, you could say also that is instigated by Google looking into building their own technologies, and that would be a fair point. But it is an interesting uh, game of strange bedfellows that Intel seems to find itself entrenched in a lot of the time. Yeah, I mean, and, and it's worth pointing out with that in mind that Intel is actually collaborating with Facebook. Now, Facebook hasn't built its own chip, and I guess they liked what Intel was doing or Intel attracted them somehow. So they're collaborating uh, with Facebook at some level on the development of, of this chip. So that that sort of implies that uh, Facebook's very interested in this technology and will probably be its first uh, first big customer for this. They're, they're uh, well into AI technology and they're competing with uh, Google and all the other big hyperscale companies in, in various ways. So they, they want access to this high-end technology for machine learning training as well. And it looks like they've sort of picked their partner here. Yeah, and that's a huge endorsement that does speak a lot for this Intel processor. I know Intel was betting big on this acquisition with Nirvana, and there has been a lot of excitement around this chip. I've been to Intel-focused events where people are definitely looking for this on the roadmap. So if you're hoping for one of these uh, neural network processors, you can put it on your Christmas list, and uh, it looks good that this will be shipping this year. You might uh, might get one in by New Year's. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see who picks one up and and who starts writing the, those first applications for it. It's, that'll be exciting for Intel and and uh, some of the first customers. All right, Michael. Also this week in HPC, I've had a busy travel week. I started the week here uh, at home in Silicon Valley in California, and I've been to China and back, and I've now made it back to uh, record the podcast. But in between, I visited the HPC Advisory Council, which was co-resident with the HPC China Conference, the 2017 annual iteration of HPC China. Both of those this year were located in Hefei, China, which was my first time there, but I got a very warm welcome, and I saw a lot of interesting presentations at both. Yeah, I mean, that's been an annual, the HPC China's been an annual event there for some time. Now, I'm guessing, and just from talking with you a little bit, that a lot of the emphasis there was was on what we were just talking about, AI, but there was probably a lot of other HPC stuff. China's been very active in both areas, if you if you could even separate them as, as separate areas, in both of those uh, technologies over the past, I would say, year or two. And there's, there's been more reporting out of China, I think, in those areas in the last uh, couple of years, and I think it's been out of there in the last 10 years. So it's, it's an active area. So I'm guessing there were some interesting... Uh, presentations and information being passed along there. 
Yeah, there was. And, and of course, AI and, and machine learning, deep learning was a huge theme for both the HPC Advisory Council portion as well as the keynotes that I got to see for HPC China, which, by the way, is still going on now. They've got multiple days worth of content, but I was only able to stay for the first day and, uh, uh, and catch what was going on there. But there was also uh, traditional scientific computing going on as well. At the HPC Advisory Council event, DK Panda of Ohio State University, who's been a staple of these HPC Advisory Council events, did give a talk on his team's work with HPC middleware, and in particular with MVAPitch 2. And what struck me about that was the particular challenge of addressing diversity in workloads, where he was looking at scientific computing applications, analytics, and big data applications, and um, and machine learning and AI kinds of applications on top of a diversity in architectures where you get all different time, types of uh, compute elements and the particular challenges in designing middleware that can start to tie all of that together. It was a very interesting presentation. Yeah, I mean, and then it points to the just the general notion that it, it often is up to the middleware libraries to do that tying together. I mean, diversity is great. It, it's exciting to see and to see all the new applications and, of course, the new uh, the new hardware and the new architectures. But, yeah, it's the middleware that sort of has to pay the price for all that diversity. But uh, these guys, I'm sure, have been busy trying to do that. As usual with HPC Advisory Council, there is a, a heavy student influence. They've been running a competition for RDMA programming, and uh, they awarded the first prize to the team from NUDT, which we're familiar with as a major supercomputing site in uh, in China. Now, I'm saying first prize. They called it grand prize. It's sort of a cultural thing. They awarded one grand prize, two first prizes, three second prizes, and three third prizes. Now, to, to me, translating that, you know, by the time you have uh, that many, that you know, the people in third place aren't really in third place at that level. But but the best of the lot, no matter how you call them, was NUDT. So congratulations to them uh, finishing just ahead of USTC and, and SJTU. Um, the other really interesting presentation I saw, there were many, but going over to the HPC China keynotes, there was a wonderful presentation by Oliver Fuhrer of Matteo Swiss or Matteo Schweitz, the, uh, the Swiss Meteorological Institute. And he was talking about the need for kilometer level resolution in their uh, weather simulations and particularly their long t- uh, their long range climate simulations they use the the code cosmo for both weather simulation and for climate modeling it's akin to the the uh, the application wharf that other people might be familiar with but they use cosmo and the reason he was stating for the um, the need for that level of resolution it wasn't just the the sort of general press for more accuracy, but he said the the biggest long term variable in running these climate models has to do with clouds and how you resolve the cloud formations, and in particular the composition of the clouds. Now, for a layperson like me who's not a meteorologist, I can still picture clouds, and he said if you picture a a cohesive blanket of cloud that's all connected, those tend to be made of ice. But if you picture the clouds that are a little dottier, uh, their connections of dots, those tend to be made of water. And unless you get the simulation down 
low enough, you can't resolve which type of cloud it is you're talking about. And for the long-range planning, it matters a great deal because the ice clouds are a great deal more reflective of solar radiation than the water clouds. So if you're dealing with ice clouds, it doesn't get as warm as if you're dealing with the, uh, the water-based clouds. So there's a big need for uh, for for pursuing that level of resolution. And he talked a great deal of what they're doing to try to pursue speed-ups in their Cosmo model. Well, that's a great example of sort of the, the devil is in the details there. I mean, you hear people talk about, you know, the need for greater resolution or greater fidelity in some of these models sort of in a generic way. But like you said, that with that sort of concrete example, it, it, it makes you see like what actually has to happen. And, and yeah, to get the different uh, reflectivities of the clouds, you have to know how those clouds are are reflecting and, and put together. So that's a uh, again that, that that's a great use case for 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 getting more performance and probably a, a lot of motivation for those uh, those developers to to uh, pursue that. And what what's more, he was laying it out as just not a matter of hey, we need a lot bigger supercomputer or faster supercomputer. They have the Pitts Cache. Uh, Cray supercomputer at Matteo Swiss. They've run codes on uh, Pitts Dint, which is also a Cray that's a larger Cray nearby. But he said they've recently gotten a 40x speed up inside of Matteo Swiss um, on Cosmo, and he laid out how they got to that 40x. Um, and it, it wasn't all just in uh, processor improvements. And uh, you can see his slide if you go to my Twitter feed at Addison Snell. I tweeted a couple of pictures from the conference, uh, but the first 1.7x out of that came from what he called software refactoring, but basically a re-implementation of uh, software. Another 2.8x improvement from uh, mathematical improvements in precision and workflow. They got 2.3x from hardware architecture migration from CPU to GPU. So that's part hardware, part software. There's a software um, re-implementation, of course, with CUDA. Then the rest was pure hardware. 2.8x came from Moore's Law and other architectural improvements uh, just in upgrading processors. And the final uh, 1.3x, or 30% on top, was from additional resources, adding more processors. So, you know, you, you lay it out and it's, it's all these different things that add up to a 40% improvement. Yeah, I mean, that's a very interesting breakdown. And it, it points to sort of some sort of the challenges going forward. I mean, we know Moore's Law is slowing down. We're probably pretty sure that, you know, these codes aren't going to be migrating from one architecture like a CPU to a GPU uh, a second time, anytime in the near future. So it puts the onus, more of the onus on the software side of it. So it's good to see they've got at least a portion of that coming from the software side. Now you can always add more hardware, but eventually that's uh, uh, that becomes impractical. So uh, I think uh, the fact that they, they did concentrate on that and put some effort into that um, sort of bodes well for the future. And it looks like we're going to have to rely more on that going forward as as sort of these other things sort of slow down but uh it's an interesting breakdown and yeah i i urge everyone to to look at that uh twitter feed and and, and see it in in person but uh, uh that's a that's a good observation now of course there was some ai and deep learning uh, quite a lot of it as well and i'll give one observation about that now we've all seen 
the different applications here so far. But just culturally, I'm starting to notice a difference uh, between the kinds of things I would see in China versus other places I visited, particularly the, the Western locales in the U.S. and Europe. And one is that there's while we've talked about privacy concerns in the U.S. and in Europe, I didn't hear any of that in China. And in fact, they would very proudly and boldly talk about applications where, you know, here's us identifying every single person coming down an escalator in a shopping mall, for example, or all the people walking around a street corner. And there's there's no alarm about that. It's as if uh, culturally they've entirely given up any kind of notion of privacy. We're okay with the idea that the government, and this is the government doing it, not like Google or, or Facebook or somebody, right? The government is doing it and saying, yeah, we're watching you. Isn't this great? Here's how safe we're going to make everybody and people just nod along. And that goes on top of just the general social media craze. People weren't using credit cards. They were paying with WeChat and Alipay. And there are QR codes on everything that people are always snapping. And everyone has completely given up all of the control of their personal data without even any concern or debate or, or second thought. And it's really another level in this kind of hyperscale deep learning as it relates to personal data. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's an interesting uh, cultural observation there. And, and, and policy, the, the Chinese government obviously is, is not run like western governments but yeah i mean there's definitely different attitudes there and different expectations on privacy and uh it has like you said it has ramifications for these hyperscale companies operating there it's um in one sense they're they're being shut out uh from the point of like some of the western companies but the ones that are able to operate are able to operate probably much more freely and collect a lot more data without the kind of scrutiny they would get in uh some of the western countries so it was definitely an interesting uh, conference, a lot of AI, very heavy on AI, but I wanted to highlight some of the HPC talks that were still there. As we go into supercomputing, I'm going to keep my ears open for that too, not just who's telling me about deep learning, but who's telling me about how they're improving their HPC codes as well, because the whole point is there are always tougher problems to solve in scientific computing. We need to improve those as well. Yeah, as we get up to SC, I think we will start seeing a lot more of those stories and uh, look forward to, to seeing even more of those at the conference itself. All right. Thanks a lot, Michael, and thanks to you for tuning in. You've been listening to This Week in HPC, brought to you by Intersect 360 Research, actionable market intelligence for high-performance computing. For more information, visit intersect360.com.